And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's just one of a number of accounts of the resurrection um, that we see in the four Gospels. And we've chosen, I've chosen, uh, the Gospel of Mark. And over the next few minutes, just in, in order to sort of help us to think through this a little better, we're going to think about Easter, <clears throat> and we're going to look at this little passage in more detail. We're going to think, first of all, about the, the history of Easter, the history of Easter. Secondly, we're going to think about the theology of Easter, the theology of Easter. And thirdly, finally, the need for Easter. Okay, so the history, the theology, and the need for Easter. <coughs> the history of Easter, first of all, is important that we grasp, everybody here today, that what we've just read in Mark chapter 16 is an actual telling of a historic event, something that really happened. That one day a man was crucified, he was placed in a tomb, and when some women went to see that tomb on the third day, it was empty. And as we read elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus then appeared to many hundreds of people following his resurrection before he ascended to heaven. And what we have here in Mark's gospel um, is actually the earliest gospel account out of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. This one was written about 20 or 30 years after the events that are described, so very, very early um, in terms of uh, historical uh, eyewitness accounts. <clears throat> and so therefore what we have just read is the earliest resurrection account in all four of the gospels. So, um, if you're familiar with the, the gospel story, the, the Easter story, you'll know that Jesus <coughs> died on a cross. Uh, he was taken down from the cross by a man called Joseph of Arimathea. He was a, a member of the Jewish council, uh, but he was a secret believer in Jesus. He was a respected man. He was a wealthy man. And so he appealed to uh, Pilate to have the body taken off the cross and um, laid in his own tomb. Joseph had his own tomb prepared for himself one day and because uh, Jesus died on the Friday and because uh, the Jewish Sabbath was on the Saturday um, uh, they put Jesus in that tomb temporarily with the intention of putting him into a more formal burial ground later on. Of course the Jews were prohibited from work on a Sabbath, they were certainly prohibited from touching a dead body that would make them ceremonially unclean so that's why Jesus was put there on the Saturday. And it says there in verse 1 that we've just read from our passage <clears throat> this evening that these two Marys, Mary Magdalene and Mary, uh, uh, the mother of Joses and James, and Salome, these three women, returned to the body then very early on the Sunday morning, the first day of the week, and they went there to anoint the body to prepare it for its final resting place, for its final burial. And it's, I think from what we've just read, it's pretty clear from the actions and from the conversations that they were having that these women were expecting to go to the tomb to find a dead body. 
And, and when we read in verse 3, it sort of reveals their discussion that they were having among themselves as they went on the way to the tomb. And they were worried because they wouldn't, the three of them wouldn't be able to push the stone away that had covered the entrance to the tomb. That was their concern. They were blissfully unaware about, of what they were about to discover with the, open, sorry, with the empty tomb. And so uh, if, you track, if you have your Bible in front of you, um, if you don't, that's okay, but you track back a few passages, you'll see that the women themselves, these three women, were actually there when Jesus was put in the tomb on the Friday. So they knew exactly where to go. They knew exactly where he was laid. And it says when they got there in verse 4, anyway, on the Sunday, the stone was, was rolled away, which was very unusual. They weren't expecting this at all because the three of them didn't think between them they would have enough power to move it away. Anyway, there it was. <coughs> in they went. And it says in verse 5, uh, a young man was sat there. A young man. <coughs> now, the other gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, identify this young man as an angel. But it's interesting that Mark describes the individual sat there in the tomb as a young man. He clearly, this physical human appearance, had an appearance of a younger man. And even that description, I think, has a, almost a ring of authenticity about it. Who would know that this was a, 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 a human being sort of shape or creature that looked like a young man, except for the person who actually laid eyes on this being? So anyway, we have this young man sat there, and it says he was sat on the right side, which at first glance sounds like an almost pointless piece of detail that Mark really didn't need to include. It doesn't really affect the whole point of the story. But the fact that the angel was sat on the right side of where the body was laid doesn't add to the main point unless he really was sat on the right-hand side. Again, it just sort of rings true of an eyewitness account. <coughs> it doesn't matter if he was sat on the left or the right, but the fact that it was reported he was on the right just adds credibility to what we're reading. Anyway, it goes on to say, Mark 16 goes on to say that the women were, were alarmed at what they found or who they saw, this young man. And the young man replied to them. He said, do not be alarmed. You know, relax. Be at peace. Because Jesus of Nazareth, this man who you're looking for, who was crucified, he has risen. And I love this, as if to sort of reinforce what he's just said. He says, he, he's not here. You're not going to find him here. See the place where they laid him. And, and evidently at that point, he sort of gestured towards the area that they had seen only two days earlier, where the body was. And indeed, that place was empty. There was no sign of the body of Jesus. But then the young man, the angel, continues in verse 7. He says, to the women who were there, the three women, look, go, tell the, the disciples and remind them of the promise that Jesus made to them only a few days earlier, that when, when all this is over, when, when I rise from the grave, I'll, I'll see you in Galilee, a good few miles north of where they were. I'll see you there. So, so, so the angel says to the women, go, remind them, I'll see you in Galilee, just as Jesus told them. And then we see in verse 8, the account ends, showing the reaction of these three women. <coughs> it says they flew into a panic. They fled. And maybe in modern language, we, we would say they, they were freaking out. They were losing their minds. No doubt, I, I, don't, I don't know if we could ever imagine what it would have been like for them, but millions of things were going through their minds 
at this stage. They were struggling to take it in. They were struggling to process all the, what was going on, let alone begin to think through what it could all mean. And so we see that they lost the plot and they ran for it. They were afraid. Now, we do know from other gospel accounts that the women eventually went to share this news with the disciples, as, as the angel had instructed. But we see here in this verse, their initial reaction was to freak out and run. And this account is made all the more remarkable if you know a bit of the background of the ancient Near East, especially the Jewish law. Because under the Jewish law, women were not permitted to give testimony in a, an illegal setting. Their, their testimony, their eyewitness accounts, if you like, were not permitted. They not, were not considered to be safe or sound in the court system. And so we might think if someone was, was fabricating this story about Jesus rising from the grave and <coughs> coming back to life again, if someone was making all this stuff up, then they certainly wouldn't put women to be the first ones to discover the empty grave. Maybe if you're making this story up, it would be Peter or one of the other great leaders of the early church who discovers the empty grave and then goes off to preach the gospel in all nations. But it wasn't like that. Mark is clear, as the other gospel writers are too, that it was women who were the first to discover the empty grave. And that would have only been put in there again, if it were true, if this really did happen. You can maybe start to, to see as we go through and think like this, how much of the historical background we can start to pick up from even this small passage in this entire gospel book of Mark. And don't forget, there are three other accounts, M Matthew, Luke, and John, that all speak about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, all from different vant vantage points, all highlighting <clears throat> certain aspects, all complementing one another. Not only that, but in other parts of the New Testament, such as the, the, the letter of 1 Thessalonians we're, we're studying uh, week to week in, in, in Foundation Church. All these presuppose the facts of the good news, that the grave was empty, that Jesus really did rise from the grave. Now look, why am I, why am I telling you all this? Why are we starting off this, this Easter message by thinking about the historicity, the history of Easter? Well, it's important. Sometimes people say about other world religions, particularly, for example, Buddhism or Hinduism, it doesn't really matter, they, they say, <clears throat> whether Buddha, the Buddha, was an actual historical person or not. The thing that matters for a Buddhist is the teaching. It's listening and applying the teaching and living out the teaching. Whether he existed or not doesn't really matter. It's, the teaching is good for life. But in that respect, it is very different to Christianity. Christianity rises and falls on the history of the gospel. If Jesus didn't really die, if he didn't really rise from the grave three days later, then all this stuff, all this stuff we're singing, all these promises that we rehearse every week, means nothing. If there were not a historic empty grave. The Apostle Paul put it like this in, in 1 Corinthians. He said, if, if in Christ we only have hope in our own life, in, in our current lives, we of all people are to be most pitied. He goes on to say, if the dead are not raised, if Jesus didn't climb out of the grave, 
Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What he's saying is this, unless Jesus really did rise from the grave, then Christianity just falls apart. It means nothing. It doesn't matter if Christianity helps you ultimately to have a really good life or to have a great marriage or to bring up great kids. If that's all it is, then he says, we of all people are to be greatly pitied. Unless the grave is empty, we as Christians have nothing. We are just to eat and drink and enjoy life because that is all we have. But if it is true, if the resurrection accounts that we read in the, in the Bible are true as they present them, then we must, we must take notice of the claims of Christianity. We must think it through. We can't, we can't just ignore it. If Jesus really rose from the grave, we can't ignore that. So first of all, the history of Easter. Secondly, though, <clears throat> we need to think about the theology of Easter. It's important that we understand as Christians that this stuff really actually happened one day, 2,000 years or so ago, <coughs> on a hill just outside Jerusalem. But we need to think about the theology of Easter now, the next section. <coughs> what does it all mean? Why did Easter happen? And I, I feel at this stage as a, as, a, as, a, as a speaker, as a preacher, that I almost run out of words to try and describe what Easter means. To, because it is almost like, I, I guess it's like looking at the sun with a massive kaleidoscope and seeing an infinite number of colours shine back into my eyes, or our eyes, to try and describe all of those colours to you is like trying to say, what, what is the point of Easter? But I think the scriptures give us uh, a great starting point to try and understand what it's all about. So let me, um, in, in, not in my words, but in the words of the Bible, try and lay out some of the key reasons why Easter had to happen. So Easter shows us, number one, that Christ died for our sins. Easter shows us that we can be cleansed from all our sins. Easter shows us that God's anger against our sin is put away. Easter shows us that we can be made right in God's view, accepted in his presence. Easter shows us <coughs> that Jesus was raised <coughs> for our justification. Easter shows us that we can be reconciled, brought back to God and reconciled to one another. Easter shows us that the record of our sin has been cancelled. Easter shows us that Jesus Christ was raised to newness of life. Easter shows us that we have power over the enemy. Easter shows us that the rulers and authorities that work against God have been defeated. Easter shows us that the way has been made for the sending of the Holy Spirit and the coming of the kingdom of God. Easter is all of these things and it is so much more. It is, it is deep, if I can even use that word. Easter and the effects and implications of Easter go to the deepest areas and levels of the human soul and the human mind and yet it is so broad, it is cosmic in its scope. There is not one area in the created order that is not affected by Easter. The ripples that come out from the cross go on and on and on throughout the entire universe. 
And all of these things, all of these blessings and benefits and so many more that I haven't even mentioned are available to all of us today as a free gift because of God's grace to us, his favour, his love. As amazing as all these things are, I want to tell you about one doctrine, one, one, one teaching, one Bible teaching that captures and encapsulates all of these blessings and benefits of Easter. We could think of this doctrine as the queen of the entire lot. This doctrine takes the historic fact of Easter, it takes the theological benefits of Easter, and it applies it to each of us as people. And that doctrine is called union with Christ. Union with Christ. The Apostle Paul explains it in Romans 6. He says, We were buried with Jesus by baptism into his death. Listen, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. For, he says, if we have been united with him in his death, we shall certainly be reunited with him in a resurrection. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. You know, we can think of Easter as a, a historic event. We can even be stirred by this list of blessings I've just read out. But if we just stop there in our thinking, as we process what all this means, or... All of that stuff remains out there. It remains detached, kind of hanging in the air. But Paul, in this passage I've just read to you, shows that through faith and trust in Jesus' work on our behalf, a person becomes united to Christ. They are in union with him. Paul says, and he's just written, that we are buried with Jesus when we're united with him. And we rose with Jesus. He walks in newness of life, therefore we walk in newness of life. What happened to Jesus happens to us, spiritually and really and truly, in union with Christ. We died and we rose again. And if you are a believer in Jesus, this is true of you now because of your union with Christ. All these blessings are given to you. When I first understood this doctrine of union with Christ, I must admit it blew my mind. It changed everything I thought I knew about the Christian faith. And I just think it brought everything for me into a sharp focus, into definition. See, Easter is not just an impressive list of benefits and blessings given to us although it is those things for sure, but it is about being united and connected to Jesus on the most profound and the truest level possible. That is why Paul says elsewhere, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. When we are united with Christ, all of the effects and the implications and the blessings and the benefits of Easter are ours through him. Just, just let that sink in for a, 
for a moment or two. Easter is not just a historic event. It is your history through your union with Christ. What happened to him happened to you. We thought about the history of Easter. (coughs) We've just been thinking about the theology of Easter summed up beautifully in union with Christ. How amazing that is. So let's finish by thinking about the need for Easter. Why do we need Easter? Because, let's face it, at a very basic level, if life was all good, if everything was just fine and dandy, then there would simply be no need for Easter. But I bet you that you won't meet a single person who believes that we have arrived somehow as human beings at a state of sinless perfection. That things are as good as they could ever be. You'll never meet anyone who believes that. We need Easter. So let me give you what I consider to be three general or main responses to Easter when you hear the history of Easter or when you think about the theology of Easter. What are the three main responses that people sometimes give, often give? Number one, when you hear about Easter, you say, yes, yes, give me Jesus. For you, if the history and the theology, if it clicks, in your mind and in your heart, if it goes down deep, if it, if it, if it, if it gets into your heart and, and, and catches fire, then it will evoke within you gratitude, praise, worship. You'll say to God, give me Jesus. Take my life. Take it all. I, I belong to you now. How can I hold anything back from you? You gave everything for me. I give my all back to you. I want to honour you with my life. Sin has no interest anymore. I trust Christ. I receive him by faith. I turn to him for everything I could ever want or need. He is the ultimate source of my joy and my happiness and my security and my peace. Yes, give me Jesus. The second response goes something like this. Sometimes people listen to the gospel account. They even find themselves being stirred by it. This valiant man dying for his people. (coughs) But ultimately, the second group of people resolve that they're just not that bad. Maybe others need this, this religion to help them feel better or to forgive their terrible sins, but me... I'm, I'm okay. I live a good life. I live a good life, certainly in comparison with, with other people. The second group say, I'm just not that bad. These people content themselves that if there is such a thing as God, then I don't think he'll be that angry with me. I think he'll be quite loving towards me because I'm just not as bad as some people. We compare ourselves in this scenario to the worst kind of people that we can often think of. Horrid individuals that we have to work with. Nasty people that we see on TV. Evil things that we read in our newspapers. And we think to ourselves, I'm not that bad. Those horrible people, they need need God. 
They need some sort of spiritual help. I'm just not as bad as them. And so we resolve that we don't really need Easter for ourselves. (coughs) But I wonder, if that's you, if we stop comparing ourselves with horrid, evil people and start comparing ourselves to good people, to the saints of old, to Mother Teresa, that kind of thing, I wonder how we would stack up. If you start thinking like that, maybe you'll start feeling a little less assured that you're not that bad. I wonder if you even live the way you expect other people to live who are around you. There's a great old illustration from Francis Schaeffer that I've shared with one or two of you before. Imagine that you had a tape recorder or a sound recorder around your neck and and the sound recorder clicks on every time you make a value judgment. When you pass a judgment on someone else or when you communicate an expectation that you have for other people. If you say something like, you know, you should really do dot, dot, dot. I expect you to do... If I was you, I would have done this. So so anytime you say something like that or even think something like that, the, the sound recorder clicks on and it records your value judgment. Then, then imagine standing in front of God one day and you can say to God, you know what, I, I, I was a good person. I didn't, I didn't need you. I wasn't that bad. And so therefore, it's not fair for you to judge me based on your rules, on your laws. And imagine then that God replies, okay then, I won't judge you by my laws. You haven't read the Bible, that's okay. Let's see how you live up to your own laws. And then he takes the tape recorder around your neck and he presses play. How would you do? Can you even live up to your own standards? I'm not that bad. See, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that the Christian is a good person and the non-Christian is a bad person. That's, that's rubbish. In fact, experience shows there are plenty of Christians that we can meet who are horrible, idiots, do all the wrong things, say all the wrong things. And likewise, there are plenty of people who aren't of faith, who are lovely, perfectly nice individuals. But the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that the Christian realises that they are hopelessly bad even on their best days in the sight of God. But the Christian knows they need help from God, they need rescue, they need grace. That's the difference. In the Gospel we see that we are a lot, lot worse than we realise. But in the gospel, we are more loved and favoured by God than we could ever dream of because of Jesus, because of Easter. I'm not that bad. Yes, give me Jesus. The third and final general response to the history and the theology of Easter is this. I'm too bad for God. Kind of like the opposite to the the one we've just thought of. (coughs) I'm too bad. 
Look down at verse 7 again. We've got this, this message that the angel has given to give to the women, to give to the disciples. And see what he says there. Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. Did you, did you think or wonder, why did he say and Peter? What about those two words? Because Peter is already one of the disciples. He's the chief disciple, if you like. He's the, almost the leader of the twelve. So why did the angel say, or why did Jesus tell the angel to say, go remind the disciples and Peter, I'll see you in Galilee. A bit of a backstory will help us to understand the significance of those two words, and Peter. During his trial, while Jesus was at the Sanhedrin, the high Jewish council, while he was being framed for crimes he didn't commit, Peter was in the courtyard warming himself around the fire. It was in the middle of the night, it was freezing cold. And as he sat there, a servant girl identified him and said to Peter, in the presence and hearing of many other people, weren't you one of those ones that used to hang out with Jesus of Nazareth, who's currently in there on trial for his life? And Peter denied, no, 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 no. You got it wrong. Definitely not. (coughs) The girl persisted, and again she said, No, no, you definitely were with him. I saw you a few weeks ago when he was healing those people. You were definitely... No, says Peter, I was definitely not with Jesus. I don't know this man you're talking about. A few moments later, another person came in and said to Peter, "I I can hear your accent. You're from the north. You're from Galilee. You are one of those ones who followed Jesus. And Peter said a third and final time, I tell you now, before the living God, I do not know this man. And right then, the gospel story tells us the rooster crowed, reminding Peter of a prediction that Jesus gave Peter, that you are going to deny me three times before the rooster crowed. And at that moment, it says, Peter broke down in tears. He fled. He wept. He fell apart. Peter considered himself to have done something so utterly despicable in the eyes of Jesus, so evil. How could something like that ever, ever be forgiven? He'd rejected Jesus. He'd let him down, and not just once, not just twice, three times. And so this message came from the angel to Peter. Go and tell the disciples and Peter, I'll see you all in Galilee. Jesus was letting Peter know that he hadn't forgotten him. He still loved Peter. He wasn't finished with him. He wanted to restore Peter. He wanted Peter to know that no matter how far you think you've gone, no matter how dark you think you've wandered into. Jesus can still restore the greatest of sinners. Grace is available. Forgiveness is there. Even though you deserted me, you turned your back on me, I never deserted you, says Jesus to Peter. I went to death and back, 
And now come and receive grace. Come and be restored. Well, there's two words in that verse. And Peter. Teach us today. That there is grace and acceptance for, for all people. No matter how bad they think they've been, no matter what they've done, no matter how bad they think they are in God's eyes, no matter how much they've screwed up, how far they've fallen, how deep their guilt, those two words teach us that grace is available in Jesus Christ for all who come to receive it by faith. On your worst day, because of the gospel, you are more loved and accepted than you could ever hope. Let me finish with this line from an old hymn by Fanny Crosby. <coughs> it says this, O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer, the promise of God, listen to this, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Because of Easter, it's history and its theology. Grace is available to everyone. So come to Jesus and receive from him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son your only son, for us. We praise you that he rose to newness of life, that he beat sin, death and the devil on our behalf and he secured our right standing with you. Would you show us this evening our ongoing need for Jesus? Would you help us to see that we are worse than we realise in our eyes when left to our own devices? And yet because of Jesus... We can be more loved and secure than we ever dreamed possible. May you give us faith in Jesus. Would you give us power to trust him, either for the first time tonight or with a deeper level of trust and devotion than we have ever experienced in our Christian walk. All glory to you, Lord Jesus. Amen.